You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Good afternoon. Thanks for sweating it out here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, as you just heard, my name is Tony Geist. Uh, I've been teaching in here in the Spanish department for many years. Um, Spain is my Spain, the Spanish Civil War, Spanish literature, and art and culture are not only my profession but my passion. So. Um, this was very challenging for me to put together because uh, Tess told me I had 45 minutes and uh, I could talk for hours on each of the three blocks that I've broken it up into. So we're going to talk about dictatorship to democracy, the Spanish Civil War, and its legacy in Spain today. Um, so I will try to leave time for discussion, but peace Please feel free to interrupt me, raise your hand if, if you have a question, an observation, if something I say sparks something for you or sounds wrong, let me know and we'll, we'll discuss it, okay? So today we're going to talk about, I hit the wrong button, here we are, try again. Okay, um, I've divided the, this session up into three blocks, the first is the Republic and the Spanish Civil War, 1931 to 1939. So it's the chronologically the shortest of the three blocks, the smallest. Um, it's the one, ironically, that I have the most to say about. Um, then there's the Franco dictatorship, 1939, from the end of the Civil War until he died in bed in 1975. Um, and the return to democracy uh, from 1977 till today and the many challenges that that, uh, that offers. So let's begin by talking about the Spanish Republic. Founded in 1931, um, and it was as a result of municipal elections uh, throughout Spain, municipal and regional elections. There were no national elections. But the so-called Republican Party, those who believed in a democratic form of government, won overwhelming landslides throughout the country in all of the municipal elections for mayor, city council, the regional elections, and so forth. In face of that overwhelming victory, uh, the king, uh, Alfonso XIII, who was a bourbon, um, uh, abdicated. He said, I cannot and will not rule a country that doesn't want me. Uh, and so he abdicated, moved to Rome, uh, and the Republic was proclaimed, it was uh, founded. Um, there was a, a constitution was written. There had been a previous constitution, it's called the Second Spanish Republic because there was a very briefly, in the 19th century, <coughs> there was a First Republic, lasted also about six years. Uh, the constitution of 1931, the constitution that was written and passed, declares, the opening sentence declares the Spanish, Spain a uh, democratic republic, a democratic 
workers' republic. Um, so it was very much a leftist ideology. Um, and it was very radical. It declared, it decreed the separation of church and state. Spain became a lay country, not wed to the Catholic Church officially. It um, instituted civil marriage and divorce, which was unheard of before. Universal suffrage, which is not up here. Women were given the right to vote. Who knows the first country that gave women the right to vote and when it happened? Anybody know? New Zealand? Yes, it was New Zealand in 1919. Not that long ago. Less than 100 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Um, and labor unions and uh, political parties were also legalized by the, by the Constitution. Um, the, so there was an election in 1932, which a left-wing, centrist left-wing candidate won. 1934, the right wing won uh, and tried to roll back some of the reforms that the, the left wing government put in. Um, that's why it's called democracy, right? Sometimes the left wing runs, one party wins, sometimes the other party wins. Um, this may have certain echoes of what we're living through today. I'll say no more. Uh, <laughs> but in 19, there were so elections in 1936 and there was a coalition on the left. Um, called the Popular Front. Popular Front brought together political ideologies that went everywhere from what we might identify as moderate Democrat, like the Democratic Party in the U.S. today, through this great spectrum of left-wing parties. Uh, socialists, anarchists, Communist Party, different branches of the Communist Party, and so forth. Um, the great burden that the left wing bears historically, both in Spain and in Europe, is infighting, uh, ideological differences. Um, the great uh, advantage that right wing parties have is that they know how to come together um, and present a united front. So the popular front was um, this coalition which was prevalent in Spain but also throughout Europe as well. Um, and they ran against the so-called National Front, basically conservative, Catholic, and incipient fascist party on the right. So 19, 1936, Popular Front won a pretty resounding victory. Uh, July 18, 1936, the Franco and four other generals attempted a coup, led a coup against the democratically ele elected government. The coup failed. That's why it's an attempted coup. And so what began as a coup to take over the government, take over the country, quickly became a much lengthier war, a civil war. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. All clear so far? Any questions? Would you like more detail? I'm, I'm just, I know you're trying to take us, you know, start us at a certain place, but I'm trying to figure out the I'm trying to understand the context of the 1931, the, what was happening in Spain as they moved towards that Republican government. Okay. They, uh, had been, they, they, they had been neutral in World War One, and so they came out and... Right. They were, they, were, they were neutral in World War One, but they were very powerfully affected, like all of the Western world, by the Great Depression, yeah. right, 1929, um, two years before Spain was plunged also into an economic crisis. Um, 
the part of the response to that was uh, was the labor unions and the growth of the left wing parties, right? So, but this had been um, the great Spanish poet Antonio Machado talks about the two Spains. He was a poet in the teens, twenties, and thirties. He died at the end of the war. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, he talks about las dos Españas, right? The two Spains, um, the reactionary right wing. Spain and a progressive modern New Spain, right, and about their kind of eternal conflict. This will persist, the two Spains persist until today, actually, with, with many modifications and changes. Okay, does that clarify yeah, a little bit? Yeah, okay, anything else? Well, here we go. Civil War lasted over 30 months, almost, uh, almost three years begun by a, a military uprising um, against the government, as we've just said. Why did the coup fail? Now, this is really interesting. Basically, the only branch of the armed forces that remained loyal, and only part of them did, that remained loyal to the Republic was the Navy, the Spanish Navy. The army rose up, the army instigated it, um, and they were basically, they were backed by Moroccan troops, Moroccan um, mercenary troops, okay? So why, the, why did the coup fail? Well, the coup failed in a little over half of Spain. It failed in Madrid, it failed in Barcelona, it failed in a number of places. Sevilla fell in the south at the beginning of the war. Granada fell. Um, the, so the southern enclaves fell, but the two ma three major cities, Madrid, Barcelona, do you all have an image of a map of Spain roughly in your heads? Yeah. Okay. Madrid, Barcelona, and Valencia, which were centers, uh, industrial centers and artistic centers, cultural centers of Spain, beat back the coup. How did it happen? How did the coup fail there? It failed because the people, m many of them uh, organized by labor unions, stormed the barracks, armed themselves, and actually beat back the army. Okay? It's an extraordinary example of Solidarity, right? Of civilian solidarity against an attempted coup. Um, and there are lots of stories about it which we can say. So, what happens in when the coup fails? Franco, of course, brings his mercenary troops in from North Africa. He had been, during the Republic, in night he had attempted an earlier coup um, and was expelled, was exiled actually to North Africa. So that's where he launched the attempted coup from, and he brought um, Moroccan mercenary troops with him uh, at the time. So what he does is calls on Germany and Italy for their help. And Germany and Italy supply tremendous amounts of uh, material aid, weapons, tanks, munitions, and uh, to a lesser extent, soldiers. Italy provided many more troops than Hitler. Hitler um, provided mostly um, tactical support and aerial support, and we'll talk about that. You've, uh, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay. So, with the intervention of Germany and Italy, what began as a, an attempted coup and quickly became a civil war, in fact, became an international war. Yes. Uh, I'm curious why you're not mentioning that Stalin intervened as well. Support of the communist movement. 
he did actually in support of the Republican interview later. Um, and I actually don't have a picture of Stalin because he didn't meet with, uh, uh, with Franco. But yes, the, um, here we see Franco meeting with Hitler and with Mussolini. Um, the Soviet Union did intervene. The Soviet Union intervened in several ways. Um, Stalin intervened mostly by supplying some arms and some tactical support for the Republican Army. Um, the way in which the Communist, the International Communist Party, the Communist International, intervened in the war was through the organization of the International Brigades. And okay, we'll talk about that in just a second, but thank you for reminding me. Um, because the, eventually what happens, the Spanish Civil War has been called the dress rehearsal for World War II, the first act of World War II. Why? Because the entire spectrum of ideologies that a few years later are going to come into conflict in this huge conflagration, which is this, the, the Second World War, are all already in play in Spain. Okay? Um, Could you so, say, that one, say that one more time about the, idea, the ideologies? You said they're all in play? Um, all of the ideologies which are going to come into play during the Second World War. So what do we know about the Second World War, right? What, who are the, the main op opposing forces in World War II? Germany. Germany. Soviet Union. Okay, on one side we have Germany, Italy, Italy, Italy and, Japan. and Japan, called yeah, the, the Axis powers. powers. And on the other side? Allies. The Allies. And who are the Allies? First Britain and France. First Britain and France. Then the Soviet Union and the United States. Then the Soviet Union and finally the United States. Why did the United States, the United States was isolationist. That's over there, that's 3,000 miles away. We know that's not our war, right? It was only when, after Pearl Harbor, right? When the Japanese Air Force attacked Pearl Harbor that the United States then entered the war, right? And the Soviet Union. Right, the Soviet Union was the um, Eastern Front, actually, and it's probably the Soviet Union lost 20,000 soldiers, 20,000 victims, soldiers. 20 million. 20, million. 20 million, I mean, I'm sorry, yes, many, I, I left off a few zeros. <laughs> 20 million, and ultimately it was the Eastern Front that broke the back of the, the Axis assault, right? Yeah. So. The international brigades lasted just about two years, 1930. They came in uh, November, December, November 1936. The war began and ended mid-July 1936. The first international brigade troops, volunteers, appear in November, in the defense of Madrid, November 7th, actually, 1936. So there were over the two-year period that they were present, there were the so-called volunteers for freedom. There were 40,000 volunteers. There were volunteer um, soldiers uh, from 54 different countries took part in the defense of the Spanish Republic. Anybody have, a, have any idea how many official countries there were in 1936 in the world? Not many more than that. Not many more. Of right, right around 60. So there were volunteers who came from literally all over the world, from Japan, from China, from Palestine, from what is today Israel, both 
Arab and both Muslim and Jewish volunteers came from from what is the, from Palestine, all of the European countries, the U.S., um, Latin America. It was it was really quite was the first display of international solidarity of this kind. It was so. Um, of those 40,000, about a third died in Spain uh, he, because they were because of their commitment, their ideological commitment. Most, very few of them had military experience. They were politically committed, ideologically committed. Some say humanitarianly committed, uh, and because of their commitment, they were used as shock troops. Um, so they um, their casualties were enormous, um, very very high in number. So, in 1936, what organizations had the capacity to recruit volunteers from all over the world and take them to Spain? The Comintern, right? The International Communist Party, right? There were branches in the United States and every country in the world, essentially. So, not all of the volunteers were members of the Communist Party. Great many of them were. Others were socialists, others were adventurers. There were some adventurers in there. Um, but it was really quite an extraordinary um, extraordinary phenomenon. All 40,000 of, of them were not there at the same time. Okay, this was in response to Hitler and Mussolini's intervention. The, the communist parties organized uh, the international brigades. They were uh, motivated by idealism and leftist ideology. Um, and the with, Republic withdrew them before the end of the war in 1938, mostly because they thought by doing so, by saying we are withdrawing our international support, our international troops, that that would force Franco to withdraw German and Italian support. It didn't work, um, obviously. But they did, there was a very famous parade in Barcelona down the Ramblas, um, the central avenue in, in Barcelona of the troops, of the international brigades as they were withdrawing. So many of them obviously went home. The Americans, American volunteers, were able to come back uh, to the U.S. for the most part. But many others were not. The, particularly the German and Italian anti-fascists could not go back to Germany and Italy. And so they went into exile, many of them to France, fewer to England. Okay. There were American volunteers, some 2,800 American volunteers. Um, 11 students from the University of Washington went to fight in Spain as volunteers. There's a monument to them about 200 yards from here, right outside the hub. There's a big granite monolith with a plaque on it uh, to the America, to the University of Washington students specifically volunteering. Uh, they came from 46 of the 48 states in the Union, there were 48 states at that time. Take a look at that picture. That's, that's a picture of the, a small group of the, uh, the volunteers, the American volunteers, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Wait, what do we notice in that picture? University. It's integrated, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is very likely Oliver Law, and we'll talk about him in just a minute. 
Um, their average age was 28. Many of them were students. Remember, the, what were the unemployment numbers in the U.S. during, uh, during the Depression? As high as 25%. As high as 25%, right. That's a lot of people who were unemployed who were organizing for employment, for labor unions, and so forth. So most of them were unmarried. Uh, most of them were young and, and unmarried when they went to Spain. There were uh, some 80 women volunteers, mostly medical corps, mostly nurses and went as volunteers, but there was one extraordinary woman named, they were all extraordinary, but one named Evelyn Hutchins who went as a truck driver. Um, and they, when she went to volunteer, they said, you're not a nurse, you can't go. And she said, of course I can go, I know how to drive, I know how to drive a truck. No, but you can't, you're a woman, you can't be near the front lines. And she said, look, you're a bunch of chauvinist bastards if you do not let me go to Spain. And so she went and had a remarkable record. Uh, there were about also 80, between 80 and 90 African-American volunteers. It was the first racially integrated unit, military unit in American history. Um, in fact, Oliver Law, I think it's that man on the right, on the left of the picture there, was the first African-American commander of white troops in American military history. He died leading his troops up Mosquito, Mosquito Ridge in the Battle of Connecticut. Um, but it was an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary phenomenon. And again, about a third of them are died in Spain. Okay, um, I want to talk a little bit about the role of culture during the Spanish Civil War, which was very important. Rafael Alberti, great poet of the generation of 1927, an extraordinary poet, lived most of the century. He was born in 1902, he died in 1999. Lived over half his life in exile after the war. Said that the Spanish Civil War symbolically begins and ends with the death of a poet. It begins with the death of Federico García Lorca, the great poet from Granada, who was executed in the first month of the war, taken out and shot, um, and buried in an unmarked grave uh, in August 19, 1936. And the extraordinary poet Antonio Machado, who was older from a generation earlier, died in exile. He crossed the border in February 1939, just be April 1st, Barcelona fell and the war ended. Um, Machado died in exile of both a broken body and a broken heart. Um, so symbolically, we can say that the war begins and ends with the death of a poet. I don't know how I did that, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, the Republic mobilized culture in defense of the Republic um, in, the face, in the face of the shortage of weapons and arms and munitions. Um, they were vastly outgunned. They didn't have, the army had gone, the, the, had gone over to the rebel side. The Soviet Union supplied uh, some military advisors and some tanks. Um, and that was about it. Uh, Mexico was one of the countries that, that supplied arms and volunteers. 
So um, they, they mobilize art and literature, and you had spoken earlier about seeing the posters, the poster yes. art. So 1931, when the Republic is established, 50% of the Spanish population was illiterate. 50% did not know how to read and write. So visual the posters, I don't have an example here, they were extraordinary propaganda posters that carried a very powerful visual message with very few words. And it was directed at um, this largely illiterate population. Um, the overwhelming majority of artists and writers supported the Republic, not only in Spain, but throughout the world. And there's poetry art and, and poetry we use as weapons. This is a picture of Alberti reading to the troops, probably in the rear guard, um, and not at the front line. All good so far? Okay. Am I going too fast? Too slow? <laughs> um, so writers and artists from around the world came to the support of the democratic democratically elected Spanish Republic, right? Um, two of the most well-known and outstanding were Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, you've probably read uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, based on his experiences in the war and his experiences with the uh, American volunteers, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. George Orwell, homage to Catalonia. Orwell went and actually volunteered with an anarchist brigade, was wounded, was shot through the neck, survived. Um, this is a picture, Hemingway was, uh, was a reporter, he was a war correspondent, and his dispatches from Spain are really quite extraordinary, they're, they're published separately, but um, he was reported to have picked up arms and fired at the, at the enemy. Here's one picture. Um, he was not supposed to do that as a, as a reporter and as a war correspondent. But, you know, Hemingway was the ultimate macho man. He was a hunter. He knew weapons. He believed in the cause. So it's believable that uh, he did, in fact, pick up a gun and fire some shots. And, of course, Picasso's Guernica, uh, possibly, possibly the most famous painting of the 20th century. Anybody here seen Picasso's Guernica in the flesh? Did you see it in Spain? Yeah. I saw it in New York. In the, the MoMA. Yeah, in the Museum of Modern Art. So um, there's a huge amount to say about this. First of all, it's enormous. It would more than fill that wall. It's about 8 feet tall and 25 feet wide. Um, but what sparked it? What, what was the inspiration for this painting, for Guernica? German bombing of Gehring in a defenseless town. Exactly. It was the first, first massive bombardment of a civilian population with no military objective. And it outraged the world. This has become commonplace now, right? What percentage of, uh, of casualties in contemporary war are um, collateral damage? A lot. It's like 80%. Right? It was virtually unheard of in, in the, until the bombing of Guernica. It wasn't just the bombing. Guernica was bombed. Um, Madrid was bombed relentlessly. Um, Barcelona less so, but Madrid was, the sim was both the real capital and the symbolic capital of the republic. And they, so 
the very early on in the war, the fascist troops surrounded Madrid and were never able to take it, never able to conquer it. That's when international brigade troops first went into action, was in the Battle of Madrid. I'll tell a quick little anecdote that Rafael Alberti used to tell, the poet we just saw. In, he was in Madrid on November 7th. Franco had said, Madrid will fall November 7th, 1936, because we have four columns surrounding it and a fifth column within. So you've heard of fifth column? traitors or the uh, people within who turned against. Um, and so the there was one of the first volunteers came to defend Madrid. And Alberti was right in the center of town. How many of you have been in Madrid? Okay, well, the, you know the, the Castellanos, the, the main north-south avenue, very broad avenue that runs, runs through Madrid. Alberti came out of place he was staying and walked out onto the Castellano and saw hundreds of soldiers very early in the morning lying on the sidewalk sleeping. And as he walked by, one Alberti described him as blonde and blue-eyed, said to him in broken Spanish, he said, comrade, is Madrid a beautiful city? And Alberti said, yes, I, Madrid is a beautiful city. And the soldier said to him, I'm happy to hear that because I've come to the city. And it's very likely that he died in the Casa de Campo defending Madrid against the assault on November 7th. Um, but what made this civilian um, casualty so famous is Picasso's character. It's a photograph by an extraordinary Hungarian photojournalist named uh, David Seymour, Chim. What do we see there? A typewriter. Yeah, remember those things? <laughs> typewriters? <laughs> Mechanical typewriters, not electric typewriters. So why, why is this photograph so eloquent? What does it tell us? What does a typewriter do? It tells stories. It communicates. It writes poems, right? And to see it surrounded, both destroyed itself and surrounded by the destruction of bombardment, is a statement, in a, a kind of a symbolic statement about what fascism meant for culture, right? For the world of culture, for writers and artists, okay? And that's why I picked this, this photograph to go here. It's such an extraordinary picture. Okay? Oh, wait. yes. Did you say journalist, too? Jo absolutely journalist, yes, thank you. Absolutely journalism. Um, and, of course, there were journalists on both sides um, of the war. Uh, international journalists on both sides, some supporting one side or the other, others not. Mostly they do take sides. Okay, first block. That was the first block. Second block, Franco dictatorship, 1936 to, uh, 1939 to 1975. So April 1st, Franco's troops occupy Barcelona and the war is over. Madrid also falls. Madrid is actually surrendered by the the colonel, uh, Coronel Casado, who had remained loyal to the Republic, but who wanted to avoid further bloodshed by surrendering the city rather than having it stormed by the troops. Half a million Spaniards went into exile. In 1936, there were 24 million. Spain had a population of 24 million. So half a million go into Half a million die during the war, roughly, during and immediately after the war. Another half a million go into exile. They flood across the border 
into France, those who, which is the most obvious land link. Some were able to escape by sea, very few. Um, Spain remained neutral in World War II, um, despite Hitler's attempts to get Franco to commit. I just, uh, uh, several years ago, I, I went with a group um, of returned Peace Corps volunteers to Cuba, and we stayed with uh, um, Cuban Christian families. Uh, and uh, so one of the families we stayed with, uh, I mean, they were, it was a Nazarene family. They, uh, and I asked, is this so why, so why did you stay? I asked the, the, uh, um, uh, the matriarch, she said, he says, just when my father, my father came here in exile from the Spanish Civil War, you know, it's at, and uh, he said, since the Cuban people took, took him in, he said, so we're not leaving here, this is our home. Wow, yeah. There were, Cuba was one of the countries that, that took in a great number of exiles. Mexico was a huge number, Argentina, Dominican Republic, many fewer to the U.S., but basically my professors, the people who taught me Spanish literature were government, uh, were Republican exiles. Okay, and I have 10 minutes left. Um, so uh, Hitler did try to get Franco to commit. Uh, they met at Andai in southern France, right on the Pyrenees. Um, they each took a train there, they met. Uh, Hitler tried to convince Franco to commit troops. After which he was quoted, Hitler was quoted as saying he would rather have all his teeth pulled than ever be <laughs> So, 1945, we all know the story. The Axis falls, right? Hitler falls. Hitler dies in his bunker. Mussolini is lynched. And Franco remains in power. So why does Franco remain in power? Franco remains in power largely because Spain, because the Cold War had already begun. Before 1945, before the end of the war, it became clear that the next enemy was the Soviet Union, was the next enemy of the Western democracies, particularly of England, France, and the US. And so Spain controls the southern flank of Europe. Spain controls the entrance to the Mediterranean. Right? It's 11 miles across. Um, so he remained in power. Um, it was supported reluctantly, but supported by the, the Allied powers. Spain went through uh, over a decade of famine. The uh, industrial structure of the country was completely destroyed. Um, so, and they, there was no, there was no food. Um, Spain was not admitted to the United Nations in 1946 because they were a fascist dictatorship. What changed that? 1953, um, well, we'll talk about this in just a second, but in 1953, Eisenhower signs an accord, mutual defense accord, with, um, with Franco and American bases are established in Spain and with them uh, aid, economic aid and food comes in. So Franco ruled the country with an iron hand, uh, with complete control over the apparatuses of social production and reproduction. That is, he controlled the legal system, religion, the military, education, politics, the economy, mass media, everything. Right? But why was it not? Why is no dictatorship ever absolute? because you can't control the family. 
you can't control what happens in families behind closed doors. And so there was a, a resistance that was perpetuated by certain families. Um, and it's nothing's perfect, right? So this was not a perfect dictatorship. Okay. What are the consequences of the Franco regime? Exile, um, hundreds of thousands of Spaniards fled across the border. These are two very famous photographs by Robert Capa, um, one of a girl at the port in Barcelona waiting to go into exile, the other of a group of Republican soldiers being marched into the camps on the beach uh, in southern France. Tremendous repression. Um, over 200,000, it's estimated that some 200,000 Spaniards were executed by the Franco regime in the 10 years following the war and buried in unmarked mass graves. Um, Republican supporters and their families faced repression and discrimination of all kinds. But what happens? Things change in the 60s, right? Tourism, the Suecas, Swedish women in bikinis on the beaches, and the service economy. Okay, this photograph is taken probably in 1970 in Benidorm on the eastern seaboard. Um, it's tremendous economic prosperity in the West, in Western, the Western world, um, which boosts tourism, uh, particularly from Northern Europe, but also Americans. That's, I first went to Spain in the mid-60s on a study abroad program. Right? And so it was beginning. This transformed the country um, in many ways. Uh, the youth revolution of the 60s, I love this cartoon. It says on her hip, it says, made in Switzerland in Sweden. Right? And this is a, the Spaniard is offering to the towering, gorgeous <laughs> Swedish woman an after-sun lotion. Right? <laughs> So the Suecas hit the beaches. Um, this revolutionized the country. In Valladolid, a town <coughs> in Castile, in, away from the beach, <coughs> there was a Guerra de los Bikinis. The War of Bikinis took place in 1970. <coughs> Very interesting. I'm running out of time, so look it up. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting. Western youth culture, sex, drugs, and rock and roll take over the country. You can't help it, right, because of this influx. But another really interesting and significant thing happens. In 1962, the resistance, the official resistance to Franco renounces armed struggle, and they decide they will fight the system from within rather than trying to conduct guerrilla warfare. <clears throat> 1975, November 20th, Franco finally dies. And I don't know if, how many of you remember Saturday Night Live. Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase, who was doing his newscast. And for months, he would end his newscast by saying, General Francisco Franco is still dead. Because for months before his death, it was a very, very long, prolonged agony. Um, he was on his deathbed for months. And the news all said, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still alive. Um, so Chevy Chase did just the opposite. Okay, democracy today, <clears throat> la transición, Spain's bloodless transition from dictatorship to democracy. So there are a couple of really significant things that happen at the transition. One is the, the prince, Prince Juan Carlos of Bourbon, 
is named King. He had been raised, he had been sent by his father from exile and raised by Frank. Um, 1977, the first democratic elections since 1936, and here we see he was the first prime minister, Adolfo Suarez, who oversaw the transition. Constitution in 1978 established Spain as a constitutional monarchy, which it still is today, but very significant. 1977, the Ley de Amnistia, the Amnesty Law, which was the founding document of what's been called the Pacto del Olvido, the Pact of Forgetting, um, of Oblivion, which both released and forgave political prisoners who were in prison under the Franco regime, but it also, the same by the same stroke, mm -hmm. forgave the surviving members of the Franco regime any um, any crime for any crimes they had committed, mm -hmm. and there were many during the war. So, in other words, it was a blanket amnesty. Spain never had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission the way South Africa has. Okay, and we're now down to zero minutes. Okay. Um, so there's a really fascinating movement, La Movida, Madrileña, that takes place mid-70s to mid-80s, roughly, for about 10 years. You're all going to get a copy of this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Of the PowerPoint. Oh, yeah. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, so for, for this period of about 8 to 10 years, Madrid becomes the youth capital and the hippest city in Europe. Uh, young people swarm to Madrid mm -hmm. to the bar scene, the bar and club scene, music, um, because it was so extraordinary. And this is, a, this is a cover from one a magazine that was a comics magazine, actually, Madrid, which is how it's pronounced in Madrid. Um, and it's very typical representative of the art of that uh, magazine. The magazine lasted for about three years. was sponsored by the city government of Madrid. That was a totally alternative magazine. Um, so the, basically the two demographic elements that uh, peopled the movida, movida means the scene, basically. Uh, I don't know what you would call it. The scene, the, what's going on, right? Um, were the punkies, punks, punk was one aesthetic, and pomos, postmoderns, right? Punkies y pomos. Uh, very different aesthetics, different kind of music, but they converged in uh, the center of Madrid, in the bar scene. Pedro Almodovar, uh, Spain's best known 20th century uh, film director, started making his films right in the midst of the movie. Okay? All right. Uh, February 23rd, there was an attempted coup. Uh, Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tejero stormed the parliament and held the hostage for about 36 hours. And this is actually a photograph of him uh, holding his pistol on the, um, with his troops on the members of parliament, on the representatives of parliament. Um, and there was a period of about a day and a half, roughly 36 hours, in which they didn't know, no one knew if the coup was going to succeed or not. You turned the, both TV and radio were both state stations, all were state stations. You turned on the radio and all they got was military music. 
Um, and after about 36 hours, the king uh, went on the radio and TV and ordered the troops back into the barracks. So King Juan Carlos has been very deeply and well-loved by the Spanish people until very recently when she was involved in a number of personal scandals. Um, but it did foil the coup and it did guarantee the rule of law for until today. So one of the, one of the major defining characteristics, I said one of the, way, the major way in which the Spanish Civil War and the dictatorship persists until today is precisely in um, these uh, unmarked graves. They currently estimate there are 114,000 unidentified victims of Franco repression buried in unmarked graves. There's a citizens movement to um, open up the graves, do DNA testing, and identify the victims. And that has happened in many places. Uh, it began under a socialist government in uh, 2006 when the right-wing government was elected, they took away the money. So it's done strictly with uh, personal funds. Okay? And that's it. Yes? Quick point. I, I read the number of following histories that claim that the Republicans killed at least 100,000 priests, nuns, and Catholics. Um, there was violence and repression, and particularly at the beginning of the war, on, on both sides. Right. If there was horrible atrocities, but the Republicans did kill vast numbers of priests and nuns. Yeah, I, 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 studies on that. I can't, yes, there have been, and it's disputed in Spain. I can't speak to the numbers. Um, I think that that's, uh, I think that's a little high from what I know, but um, thank you for bringing that up. I think one of the major differences is that there had been such um, such extraordinary class warfare in Spain, um, so much such extraordinary tensions for centuries between the working class and the oligarchy and the ruling class and the church, that when the war broke out, that is when the army rose up against the republic, there were uncontrolled elements that did kill nuns and priests. I don't think it would be as anywhere near 100,000. The difference is that, that the republic as an official policy, put a stop to that and outlawed it, whereas Franco fomented it, right? So that would be one of the differences. But yes, it's a civil war, and civil wars are very uncivil, right? I mean, people do terrible things to each other. Yes? Well, why was Lorca executed? Um, Lorca was executed, probably he was executed by a fascist firing squad. He was taken out and killed because at the beginning, very a few days before the beginning of the war, when tensions were very, very running very high in Madrid, there were people being killed on the street. There were skirmishes between left-wing and right-wing groups um, in Madrid, and he went to his hometown. He went to Granada, where he thought he would be safe. From Madrid down to Granada. Uh, when the war broke out, he was quite alarmed, and he went to refuge in the home of a friend of his, another poet, um, who was whose brother was the head of the fascist party in Granada. So he thought it would be safe there. He was safe there for about a week. Then he was arrested, taken out, taken outside town, and, and shirt, murdered, killed with, executed with uh, four other socialists. 
So Lorca basically, there's been a huge amount of study of this. Um, essentially, Lorca, was, and there's a, an Irishman named Ian Gibson who wrote a brilliant book on the assassination of Lorca. Great, great book, which he started in the 60s, so he was able to interview a lot of the people who had living memories of that. But basically, he was, Lorca was gay, he was open, he was out of the closet, as, as out of the closet as you could be in a conservative right-wing town like Granada. He was from a wealthy landowning family, so there was a lot of uh, class hatred against him, and he was gay, and he was a poet, so um, the, the Franco regime realized very soon that they had made a mistake, almost that is a public relations mistake. Yeah. And so they tried to cover it up. Uh, they blamed it on, actually, on Rafael Alberti. And, um, they said that he, that Alberti, who was a close friend of Lorca's, had made a broadcast, in uh, an inflammatory broadcast in Lorca's name, pretending he was Lorca from Madrid. Which is that, that was manifestly false. So that's that's yes.